Uno, dos, tres. You're gonna have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Happy New Year, sports movie fans, and thanks for making Scoring at the Movies a part of your day. Consider this your prompt warning in this, our 94th episode, that we will spoil every little bit of McFarland as we can. I'm the middle-aged coach who's never hit a snarky punk with a cleat, but boy would I like to sometimes. Blanco, Ryan Ellis. And here's the McFarland Cougar, and that spell with an E, who might not look like he can run, who might not act like he can run, but brother, okay, he can't run. Chris Gregorio. I kind of feel insulted, but... It's accurate enough that I can't hold it against you. And you might not have ever thrown a cleat at me while we're recording these, but the laundry list of household items that has zipped by my head at various points during our recordings, I could fill an encyclopedia. But usually I've deserved it, so I don't hold it against you. Daggers from my eyes. (laughs) That is the most common one, yes. (laughs) Shut up, you idiot. (laughs) Well, this is our first time, sorry, your first time watching McFarland, I guess USA. McFarland. But it does say, when you watch it here in Disney Plus in Canada, Just McFarland, and apparently that's how they marketed it here in this country, Just McFarland. But in the States, and I guess abroad, it's with the USA part. When you post this podcast in about two weeks, you can call it USA if you want to. Can I call it McFarland Canada? Let's just claim it (laughs) it as our own. That was the original marketing strategy. It's like, there's a McFarland in all of us, so McFarland, Mexico. Given the content of this movie, that would have been a weird choice to have a McFarland comma Mexico, but maybe. When the movie started, I assumed they were going close to the border because of the fact that it's so Hispanic. Although a lot of California is, but I just assumed it was further south. But then I looked it up, and it's right near Bakersfield. Now, Maria Bello does say to Kevin Costner that they can't live there because they can't afford to live in Bakersfield. I didn't know where that was anyway, but I didn't think that was that far south, and it isn't. And it's also inland as well, so they're basically the middle of the state Geographically speaking, it's not that close to Mexico. And it's also funny that it's called McFarland when at this point in history, 1987, when the movie is set, it's so predominantly, overwhelmingly Hispanic kids with a name like McFarland. Anytime we watch a movie that is based on a true story, I'm always compelled to just see how much of this information is true to the story and how much of it is totally fictionalized for the purposes of the movie. Apparently, Jim White was involved to some degree within the production. He talked about how they fictionalized a lot of specific events, but they got the overall narrative to his satisfaction. So to my mind, that's good. It does make sense that it is central state, since we hear that these kids living in California had never seen the Pacific Ocean at one point, right? But apparently McFarland, when Jim White started working there out of school... Long before 87. Straight out of school, apparently. He was there for a long time. And it was a predominantly white community at that point Mm -hmm. and then the demographics changed over the decades so hence i suppose why such a hispanic dominant community is named like you said something that sounds like it belongs in scotland or ireland but it is interesting because of the hispanic community you would assume that it's very much south in the state of california and that was a little bit of a shocker to me when we went to visit colorado some years ago because colorado has a huge Mexican immigrant population. Great Mexican food as a result, we discovered. 
But apparently that migration of people from Mexico north of the border wasn't just limited to the southern part of California. It's progressed quite a bit further than that over the decades. So these kinds of assumptions you make, and that's something I guess this movie is partially challenging, is the assumptions you make about certain ethnic groups, I suppose. Right? The Karen James! <laughs> South Park said it so well, mocking that mentality. This movie points it out. Stephen Colbert did as well when he, I think, had just started The Late Show. Or yeah. maybe when he knew, he was probably still doing the character on The Colbert Report. But anyway, in both cases, middle-aged men try to do this work. Neither of them are arrogant about it. Like, oh, of course I can do this. But they try to do the work, and they can't keep up at all. Colbert admitted it when he spoke to Congress. And Jim White doesn't even last a day. In both cases, they didn't last a day with his backbreaking labor. But these young kids and the middle-aged men and women, I don't know if there's a lot of women, but anyway, all these people, all the Mexican people, Hispanics, are able to do this every single day. And it seems like more than once a day, early in the day and then after school. So white people in this whole tucker jobs thing can screw themselves because this movie and Colbert as well in reality proved, nope, you can't do these jobs and you don't want to do these jobs. Yeah, and I think that's the most critical element of it is people don't want to do those jobs. And that's been the hypocrisy of that whole argument of immigrants are coming to America and taking our jobs. Do you want to go into the fields at 5 a.m. and pick produce for minimum wage? If that, because a lot of these people mm-hmm. would be undocumented illegal immigrants as far as uh, Slave the countries. Labor. Can, yeah, essentially. And right. again, can you? No, you can't. Well, you could. Some people can. You build up enough endurance over time if you're forced to build up that endurance. But the key is how many middle-class white Americans who have been living in the country for a generation or two and have gotten used to a certain sense of comfort. This is not necessarily white-collar people we're talking about here. Like in the case of Jim White in this movie, and Maria Bello says that at one point, it's not like they're affluent people, right? They're they're, not. Now, granted, this is the 80s, but nonetheless, a single-income family, and as Maria Bello says at one point, we're living on a teacher's salary now, right? So it's not like they're swimming in cash, but nonetheless, as Jim White says, nobody here has been through what you guys have been through or what you do every day. Mm-hmm. How many unemployed Americans could you point towards these jobs and say, we need help, please come do it? And they'll tell you, no, I'm not doing that. You're going to pay me $6 an hour to go pick in a field for 12 hours a day? No, that's inhumane. Forget you. But those same people might go to a grocery store and say, what do you mean my blueberries are more than $3 a pint, right? right? It's that hypocrisy of I want fresh, organic, cheap produce, but I don't want to pay anybody very much money to do it. And I kind of don't want to do that myself. So where do you find the balance in that? And I think this movie does a good job of pointing out that it's not directly speaking to that economic inequality necessarily, but it is pointing out that, listen, these are human beings that are doing these jobs and they're enduring for the benefit of their children. And it really casts a grim light on people like he who shall not be named, the (laughs) previous U.S. president that would rather spend billions of dollars to put up a farcical show of a wall than to just embrace people coming into the country and use that money towards some sort of social safety net or educational program. Funny you bring that up because we post this episode on January 6th. Oh, really? (laughs) And by the time this gets posted, there may have already been some kind of... He's apparently doing a press conference from Florida about God knows what. Well, anyway, we've been talking for a while. you got to open up a beer over there. Your Zap, is that what that says? Zap, Zap. My cranberry ginger sour IPA. As seasonal as I could find for the recording days of this, anyway. Because it is a few days before Christmas as we record. Okay, well then, run, Thomas, run. 
or run. Was it Vallas? Is that his last name? Vallas. Vallas. You sound like Jim White at the beginning of the movie. What were the names he was trying to pronounce? Well, that's one of the soft racisms in this is that Jim's not, I don't think, a bad person. Well, he's not obviously a bad person, but it's that laziness of not trying to learn their names properly. Even Thomas, it probably would be Tomas, but he never calls him that. Well, that's the thing, though. We don't necessarily know that. And that's the dichotomy of this movie. There's that lazy assumption early on in the movie, granted, by Costner's character, where all these names, he's looking at the page, and they aren't Anglo-white names, so he's struggling. I guess it gets Diaz, right? But that's Mm. like the Smith of, of Mexico, I suppose. But later in the movie, he's at the Diaz household for dinner, and then afterwards he's trying to thank i think originally he was going to try to convince the father to let the sons definitely off of work and then he thinks better of it and he just says well tell your dad thank you for me and the father turns around and says you can tell him he's very welcome right so there's like assumptions both ways that just because these are people of mexican descent the father's probably been living here for 30 years himself right and speaks perfectly functional english that actor does exactly so when i say maybe it could be that this movie wants you to understand that these are meant to be people of in part the place they came from originally mexico or wherever that is but also the place where they're living now being america so thomas velez as opposed to tomas velez or thomas velez i suppose right it's a combination or mm-hmm. somewhere between the two I think, or maybe I'm giving the movie too much credit, but I think this is a movie that does a good job of really, without bludgeoning you over the head with it, mm. touching on a lot of elements. Political issues. Yeah. And also just human issues. It's frightening because I think it's probably pretty accurate of the 80s. It's probably pretty accurate of 2021. I think it's accurate like, of 2022 ugh. now, as we post the podcast. True enough. Plus, of course, I'm saying the actor speaks perfect English. Maybe the yes. real Senor Diaz didn't, but the guy playing him does in this movie. So anyway, Run, Thomas, Run, was Tomas, Run, was released nearly seven years ago by Disney on February 20th, 2015. The movie didn't have a mega budget, so its worldwide gross of $45 million made it a modest success. And this is the time frame when Costner was making socially conscious pictures because he did hidden figures the year after this, where he has a pretty important supporting role. That's the three black ladies in the leads, but he has a pretty important role in that. And I think it was the same year as this or the year before he did Black or White, which is about him and his adopted, I think, black granddaughter, something like that. So Costner wasn't the star anymore in the mid-20-teens, but he was making socially conscious movies like this. And like I just said, it succeeded okay, considering. But you'd never seen it before. I had. Didn't remember that much about it. My old notes had a two and a half out of four, so I didn't love the movie, obviously, when I saw it the Hmm. first time. But certainly adequate. What do you think, then? I was mostly impressed by it. I'm not directly comparing these two movies, but in terms of emotional impact, it felt a lot like The Peanut Butter Falcon to me. Oh, okay. Why? What were you? you I was going to say. Fingers up as if to say. That's good, too. Hoosiers. For him, mostly, though. For Jim White. Uh, Mostly early on because of his arc of hitting a kid. Now, his thing with the cleat off the locker was a complete accident. He wasn't trying to hit the kid. And you could see why that he would get fired. I love the economy of storytelling, too. That that was good. You never see that scene. The movie's over two hours, so you don't need to see that scene. But them driving away to some other place, as it turns out, to middle of California from Boise, Idaho, tells you everything that he got fired for that thing. Well, Hackman supposedly hit a kid, and that's why he lost his job at a prestigious school. Mm-hmm. University, I think, even, wasn't it? I think so. And then he has to do this high school coaching job in the middle of nowhere. And both of them are teachers on top of being coaches. Yeah. And Hackman's that... teaching history or something like that. 
I think that's more in keeping with historic roles at schools in America. In modern times... You're just a coach. Yeah, because they get paid so much money, right. and there's so much emphasis on sports as a money driver for schools. But Costner also wasn't originally the track and field coach. That's well, we right. said track and field promoting this on Casino Royale, and I guess technically this is cross-country specifically. I guess track and field is not inaccurate to call it that, but you say that and you think about it being a meet where, like, and without limits, all the things are happening. You see in some of the, especially the Olympics, of course, where they're doing high jump and that kind of stuff in the background. This is just about cross-country running. Way across country running, too. And some of those Californian hills that really come into play. Well-shot movie, incidentally. I mean, it helps that it's set in California. So being able to find accurate representations of what these kids would have been running through is pretty easy. But kudos to them for doing that. You'd ask my thoughts on the movie. Yeah. I can't argue with that comparison. Hoosiers makes sense. I get the comparison with Hackman. I guess just because Peter Peter Falcon it's mostly was, the was coach more recent. element, the coach arc as well, because somebody who doesn't really want to be there and doesn't really fit in, there's no racism in that movie, no racial issues to deal with there because they're all white. They play a black team, but everybody in that movie that really matters is white. But the coach arc is pretty similar, right down to the whole idea behind will Hackman leave? Barbara Hershey's character is concerned because she's starting to fall for him. Is he going to bail? Yeah. He'll have another chance to do some other thing because he's made this mediocre team be capable of winning state. Well, in this case, here's a guy in the story of the movie, not in reality, because they already had a track and field team, cross-country team, and he'd been doing that for years with boys and girls. But they didn't have this at all, so I'll do the nutshell for that. This is an invented team this year, right? No cross-country team at right. the school. So in a nutshell, McFarland has no cross-country team at all in September. But they win state three months later. Now that's a Disney fantasy. Yeah. There was a time, I think 79 or something, McFarland did not field any cross-country teams. I don't know if that was budgetary or what. And so come 1980, apparently he did rebuild both the boys and girls cross-country teams for McFarland. I kind of get why they did it this way and the dramatic elements of him showing up in a place and recognizing these hidden talents that these kids had. That's what movies always do. It's no surprise. Yes. This is one of those instances where I don't blame the fictionalizing of some elements of the story for the purposes of a dramatic arc as long as it stays true to the heart of what's trying to be told. And I think this movie does that. I think one of the things this movie does well is you meet these kids and their families and the environment in which they live through the eyes of a middle American white family. White saver narrative. Well, I suppose. I'm thinking more from the perspective of the strange other, right? So this is a family that has clearly just never experienced Mexican culture in their lives because they show up there and like, what do you sell? Tacos, tortas, and tortas are effectively sandwiches. They're very good. Quesadillas. Empanadas. Burritos. And he's like, hamburgers? Tacos, tortas, right? Mm -hmm. So these are people that are just experiencing this culture for the first time, and they're scared by it initially. And frankly, that initial introduction, I don't blame them, because the way those guys rolled up in their cars when Costner's family is going out to dinner, especially the way that jackass is catcalling and leering at Costner's teenage daughter, if that happened to me and I'm a father of two teenage girls mm -hmm. and these guys rolled up, they look like they're trying to cause trouble with my daughters, then yeah. I'd be About a dozen guys and you with your wife and two girls you lose if they want to start something. Exactly. So. And this is not a judgment call based on what these guys look like. It's basically how one of them was behaving, at least, yeah. in the way they approach. So he does apologize, of course, later in the movie for his assumptions that he made then. But it is an interesting way to introduce this town and this culture because of Jim White's lack of familiarity with it. So he's being introduced to it along with you. And that felt to me a lot like Peanut Butter Falcon because... We get thrown into this narrative with our two leads, Shia LaBeouf and... Uh, Zach Gutsigan. Zach Gutsigan, thank you. 
And we don't really know a whole heck of a lot about either one of them early on, but as the movie unfolds, of course, we're introduced to both of their stories a little bit. We get to know both of them. And I felt that was kind of the same way here, because as the movie unfolds, a lot of the assumptions that are made early on about these kids and their families and the environment in which they've grown up is peeled away layer by layer as Jim White becomes more familiar with them and learns himself. That's pretty effective, because by the end of the movie, you really just get to appreciate frankly it doesn't take a lot to appreciate this because at one point they basically explicitly say it to you i can't do this job you guys do this job your families do this job your families might do it an entire lifetime willingly so that you might have an opportunity to better your circumstances going forward oh that's the speech before the meet at the end then yeah the inspirational on the nose but still decent speech we've seen hundreds of inspirational sports movie speeches. It was fine. And it's somewhere maybe in the middle of those at best. Yeah. But it's also very truthful and quite a nice thing to say to them. I think it was recognizing that what this movie does early on is look down its nose at the lower economic echelons of America, right? This, again, is not an affluent family. One of the poorest towns in America, one of the teachers says. The poorest in the state, I think she says. So okay. Presumably pretty, pretty poor. In, in For a very rich well. state, basically. one of the, It is the richest exactly. state in the whole union. And they show it to you in various ways without hammering you over the head with it, too, right? Like the state of the school's track facilities, for instance, are not decrepit, but it's not fancy. When they go to another school, we see, oh, yeah, they've got better facilities. They have the poorest uniforms because Jim White has to get out of pocket for the cheapest things to buy because that's all he can afford. Mm -hmm. And So this is not an affluent guy, single-income family, teacher salary in the 80s. But when they pull up to their new house, and I don't know if this was something they bought sight unseen or was being provided to them by the school board, because they pull up to it looking like, what is this? Mm. It's no mansion, but it seems like it's in relative good state of repair. It's smallish, but it's like a detached house. And given the circumstances of property values in Canada and the U.S. in 2021. I would take that now. I, I would have taken that back in the summer when we were looking. Talk to somebody now about the inflationary effects on housing costs, whether you're renting or buying, and then look down your nose and something like that. I get that this movie was set in 1987, but that was one element that in 2021, 2022, doesn't play necessarily so well just because of what's going on right now. But the way that they and their family react to this house when they see it for the first time, Jim White and his family at least give it 30 minutes of absorbing what's around you. I get that this isn't where you're coming from, but suck it up a little bit. It's been seconds. I don't even know if it was meant to be white privilege, but certainly middle-class privilege when they arrived there for the first time. Well, they were probably doing okay of him coaching a team in Boise, Idaho. Not exactly a prestigious place, but still looked like he was doing okay when he was coaching that team. Probably cheap to live, I would guess, too, in Boise, Idaho. Those rural-ish middle American towns tend not to have the most expensive cost of living, mm -hmm. historically speaking, anyway. The dialogue with Bellow makes it sound like they were doing just fine before, but they have to settle now. Well, how about that family you just talked about? So it is Costner, of course, as the dad. Maria Bellow as Cheryl, the wife. And we said this on our last podcast, Eva Green, who is, of course, a staggeringly beautiful woman, but hasn't had very many good roles in her career. Casino Royale was a very good role for her, one of the best Bond girls of all time. Maria Bello, it's even more true. She's been good for a long time. She's rarely had very good roles. She likes to take interesting roles, though, different ones, not just go the Hollywood route. And she's already at this point in the mid-20-teens having to settle for the supportive mom. She's very solid in this movie, considering what she yeah. has to do, but what a waste of her skills. But then again, the score factor... And this movie has no score ability whatsoever because it is Disney, for one thing. That's right. And the plot line, of course. But Costner and Bella, when they're primes together, they would make beautiful children. 
even at the age they are in this movie, they'd make beautiful children. Yeah, no, fair enough. Just get rid of that can you score at this movie thing right off the bat, because mm. no, you cannot. Yeah. I agree with you about Maria Bello. Was it Eastern Promises or History of Violence? History of Violence. Yeah. Evan and I covered that a couple years ago, and she and Vigo should have done something else together, because they are really good as they a couple. They were really good movies. in that movie, too. And it's one yeah. of her better roles. She might be even better than he is in that movie, and he's the lead yeah. in that. Where again, she's playing somewhat of a supportive wife, but a real character. A lot of meat, a lot of juice. One of the more unusual sex scenes you've ever seen in movies. Yeah. And of course, an awful lot of violence, great acting, everything. So she's fine with Costner in this, but it's too bad she has to just play the wife. Morgan Saylor is Julie around the same time. I guess before this, she'd been playing Dana on Homeland. So she's Brody's daughter. And she's pretty good in this, although she's a small role. She was also, I didn't remember this, Young Meadow on The Sopranos. Meadow! Oh, God, it's been so long since I saw that. Well, she was so young. And you know who plays her sister, Jamie? If you've not seen 8th grade, this will mean nothing to you. But people on the other podcast I do with Bev, Top 100 Project, have heard me rave about 8th grade lots of times. I love that movie so much. Elsie Fisher is her. So she's the main character in 8th grade, and she's the younger daughter in this. Is it about the ninth grade, and it's just like really ironically titled or something? (laughs) No, please don't. 8th grade. (laughs) That movie, I did not expect to like it, and I've seen it, I think, three times. I'll watch it again. And she's going to be in the new Texas Chainsaw film that comes out really soon. So anyway, Elsie Fisher. And that's a pretty good dynamic with the family. But this movie is a bit of a cliche. One of the reasons why the movie is not a great film, because it looks really good. Nikki Caro directed it. Bev and I covered Whale Rider late last year. She directed that. That was her breakout. Mm. She also did Mulan two years ago, I guess it was now. <laughs> Whenever that was. The, the live action, the live action right remake. Yeah. All three movies, especially this one and Mulan, look beautiful. She takes advantage of the sun an awful lot in this movie very smartly. That's what a lot of male directors have done over the years. Let the sun make your great lighting for you. And she usually has women in lead roles. Not in this case. I thought when I first pitched this movie to you, it was about girl runners. Because, again, I saw this movie so long ago, I just assumed that's what it was. And that seems like a Nikki Carroll thing to do. Okay, Costner's your main character, but then the other ones are going to be girls. But, no, of course, it's all boys, so I was wrong about that. So she seems like a bit of a weird choice for that. Except maybe you've got the storyline of people that are struggling and whale rider they're struggling as well in their town and apart from the white family everybody in the movie is not white and that's what nikki carroll has done over and over again mulan they're asian whale rider they're okay maori sure. and then most of the boys or all the boys i guess in this and the writers there's i'm going to get to you about a comparison christopher cleveland and bettina i guess it's pronounced gilois or gilois well i'm gonna sound like an american gilois it's probably gilois <laughs> they wrote glory road we did that about a year ago yeah, okay and if you think about it that's also a similar film White coach, the non-white kids, who aren't expected to do anything and then do everything. They win state. Well, they win the NCAA that was, that championship. That was Disney too, right? That was also Disney. This is treading well-trodden ground already. Very well. But it is not ground that is often very well done. Oftentimes, it's either super sappy and overly cliche, or it's just bad, and it misses the mark, at least in my opinion. And a few of the things that I like that this movie did... Actually, let me back up one second, because you mentioned the look of this movie already, and I agree with you. The settings for what they needed to do here were readily available to them, and they made good use of it. Like you said, it all looks great, and natural lighting helps. The one thing I wish this movie had done better was make it feel more like 1987. Until I saw the title card of the first track meet, I don't know if I was told earlier in the movie what year it was. I'd forgotten. I thought it was present day, essentially. I think it says in the opening one, the football game is, well, halftime of the football game's happening, and Costner gets fired. I believe it does, because I wrote a note. It's boys in August 87, and then you see other title cards later on. I I wanted to make sure I knew where we were, timeline-wise, I wrote that down, but I didn't need to because I was reminded through the whole film. Well, I'm glad they did, though, because, like I said, I forgot. I was trying to think, why does it not feel more like 1987? It's the hair. I think it's the hair. 
A few of the kids in the movie have longish, floopy 1980s hair. But by and large, people have 2020s haircuts. Costner's just going to have Costner's haircut. That's what he does, whatever. But all the other characters, especially some of the kids at the track meets, they've got styling hipster haircuts going on there. I'm like, nobody in the 80s had hair like that. And I think that's it. There's no 80s mustaches, no 80s hair, <laughs> no high 80s socks that I noticed anyway. It didn't feel like the time and the place that the movie wanted to be set in. I guess ultimately it doesn't really matter all that much because it's not like they're leaning on any particular element of the 80s. It just happens to be when this story unfolded. It would have helped, though. You're right. They don't have Tarantino's budget, though, to really truly set it in its time and place. I guess that's true. And what are their sets, right? Their sets are a lot of fields and a lot of open spaces where they're running and some houses. And so it doesn't take a lot necessarily to dress that up to feel like the 80s. Again, it relies mostly on the way you make the people look because you don't need to have a huge budget to procure a bunch of mid-80s cars or something because I think we only ever see Costner's car and then the cars that belong to these family members of the car club. Air quotes car club because Mm. later on there's like a gang gang stabbing or something. They're the gang. So kudos to Adam Arkapa. He's the cinematographer. Not a name I know. I don't think I've ever seen that name before. If I have, I've forgotten, but Adam Arkapa shot it. As far as the well-trodden ground, though, I feel like I spent the better part of two years just crap, and I'm going to do my best not to swear in this episode because I think we've been good about that, just crapping all over a lot of movies for cliched romantic subplots, which this movie avoids. There's mm-hmm. a little bit of a thing with Velez and Julie, but you know they don't overplay it, so that's cool. There's movies where I feel like, and we've talked about this at length, they try to shorthand stuff. And I'm like, no, to me, it didn't work. And I didn't understand it. The best shorthand is that he got fired and we don't know he got fired, except then driving somewhere else. Yeah. That is good writing. That's good writing. I feel like that's another thing this movie does. It's not a short movie. And frankly, I feel like it could be shorter than it is. And I'm going to talk about specifically why in a bit. But by and large, I think this movie does a reasonably good job at pacing the storytelling and being economical when it has the chance to be. The evolution of how we get to know the kids, while not perfect, I thought was reasonably good. Early on, I hated all of the kids that I was introduced to, not because they're not white, boo, but because they (laughs) they behave like jackasses, right? Especially Victor, which he doesn't keep doing. Johnny recruits the team, and he doesn't keep being a leader. (laughs) Exactly. It happens early on. The one montage, he recruits everybody. You would think he would be the one that's the leader of the whole group, but it's more Danny, the anchor, although David... One of the three brothers wasn't actually there because he graduated, but they wanted to have more of a family element, so that's why it's all right. three brothers. But Danny was a big factor in the state finals, I guess. He's not supposed to be anybody who would finish higher than seventh of their seven, but he finished fifth because Jose had screwed up by setting a bad pace, running too hard and running too fast, and Danny saved their bacon by running the way he did. You already mentioned the speech that Costner gives before that final meet, right? They've given it their all to qualify. They now have, they're at the final meet. And they think he's bailing to go to Palo Alto. But specifically the speech he gives before the running starts, you're superhuman and you can do things these kids can't because they don't know the hardship you've known. And then we get to the race itself. And like you said, Jose pulls that rookie mistake of just going hard right out of the gate. And when you're distance running, I don't run and even I know this. Mm you got to find your pace, right? Because if you go hard, you're going to gas yourself. And especially in that terrain they're running, which is all hills, you're going to die. And that's what happens. He craps out. So in my mind, I'm like, is this movie trying to tell us that this kid got so jazzed up by this speech and he so believed what Costner told him that he was undefeatable superhuman kid that he just went hard? Because this isn't their first race. They've done this mm-hmm. number of times now. He should know what his pace is. And what his role on the team is, too. Exactly. I don't know if that's true to life. 
exactly. I don't know if that is, but apparently Danny did really help Danny him out. Through, so maybe yeah. some other guy may not have been Jose. What was your interpretation, though? Did you think that was just like a kid getting too excited? Was well, that a result of the speech? Let me break out a baseball cliche. He didn't stay within himself. <laughs> he swung out of his shoes at that oh, pitch. I hate when they say that. Didn't stay within myself. Although, I guess that does apply because it'd be like a pitcher who doesn't throw the ball hard, trying to throw the ball 98 miles an hour and throwing it badly or even hurting himself in the process. Do what you're best at. But maybe he was jazzed up there at state finals regardless of Costner's great speech. But if Danny had to actually in reality save them, then somebody must have messed up. I don't know how accurate that is, how much of it is Hollywood writing, but we don't often see one of the members of the protagonist teams actively screwing up in that way, right? Because right out of the gate, you know, oh, he's going to screw his team over. We've seen plenty of examples where the protagonists lose. Very recently in Bad News Bears, we saw that. We've seen in other movies, and yep. I think we usually agree that makes sense. And Usually I prefer like that it. ending. You Rocky, think? Friday Night Lights, even Bad News Bears. Yeah, but it's rare that we see a focus on one of those team members actively screwing up and causing them to lose. And of course, in this case, he didn't actually cause his team to lose. They end up winning. It kind of interrupted you. But if you want, we can go back to that. No, I think I made the point. They they set up that Victor is a prick early on. Oh, yeah. The Johnny recruits everybody. So you think he's going to be the team captain. But it sets all these things up and doesn't really pay them off. That's one of the weaknesses. Early on, we see Victor seems like he's going to be maybe the hard one to deal with. Another movie we could compare this to would be Coach Carter. That's a black coach, not a white one, but he's got to deal with this mixed race team. There's all kinds of different types of people on that team. And it's not really a racial movie exactly, not like Glory Road is and not like this is, a movie that has to deal with racist people. That has some of that, I guess, but Mm -hmm. that's not really the point of that movie. That's more about respect for yourself and the black coach teaching him all that kind of stuff. But there's the guy, I don't remember his name right now, but he's the one that has to do the push-ups and run the lines, Right, thousands of them. And he doesn't achieve it, but then the team steps up and does it for him, which is one of the best moments in that whole film. And Jackson doesn't give it away, but the look on his face seems to be saying, had Timo, is that his name? If he'd succeeded at doing this somehow, great. But the whole point was for the team to realize, no, we've got to help him out. Yeah. that's. And I think Victor's set up as that guy, and he doesn't become that guy. If the yeah. movie's two and a half hours long, maybe he would have been. I don't really care in the end because most of the boys are pretty good in this movie. Most of them didn't act again, or not that much at least. But Thomas is the main character. That whole thing with him on the bridge apparently is based on reality. I was reading about that. Yeah. I don't know if he was so much considering suicide. It's not even really portrayed in the movie that he's thinking about jumping. It's more a matter of the very beginnings of thinking about jumping, I guess. And that's also when they both recommit to the team. Because it's not like Jim was going to bail, but he says something about how... He doesn't literally say he wants a second chance. But it seems like they're both saying, let's do this again. Because Thomas, I guess it's that day, had quit. But now he's saying, I want back on. Yeah, Thomas has quit, but that was prior to the job offer to Jim. Well, that came later because they started being good. Yeah, Yeah. but that was still a little bit of a second chance for both of them because Thomas had quit and because Jim had lost the trust of his best runner and it was just kind of recommitting to each other, to the team, to the concept of trying to find a thing to elevate these kids out of maybe the nonstop drudgery of what they had experienced. I like the touch, too, that that day his father hit him, but it wasn't intentional. I don't think he's lying. I don't think it's that whole sort of, no. oh, man, I'm the battered wife, and I just hit a doorknob, or I fell down the stairs. No, I think he's saying, my father was punching something, which is bad enough, but it wasn't a person, it was something, yeah. and I got in the way because I got to save him from himself, and he hit me, but he didn't mean to. That's a different touch. I like that. It's not like the movie's trying to imply, no, the kid's lying, he's coming up for his dad, because that's the last we ever see of angry Thomas's father. We see shots of him at events and at He's races at the end. The future. Mm. He goes to the finals. That's right. But it's never like he gets vilified for that. Mm. And what's interesting is it plays into the overarching narrative of this community and these people in the community because Thomas explains to 
Kevin Costner's character that, listen, my dad, even within the context of this community, he's lower down in the pecking order, which means that he has to go state to state to find work where he can for himself. And if he breaks his hand punching a wall because he came home from out of state after two months and found out his daughter was pregnant. Right. And earlier in the movie, we find out, I think that Thomas had gotten a fight at school because another student had called his sister some rude name because she was pregnant. So his father got angry, was lashing out, punching walls. He never lashed out at Thomas's mother, though. We never see him threaten the mother. He was literally punching a wall in frustration and anger, and Thomas ran in, and that's the last we see of it until Thomas shows up with the black eye. So, yeah, it's an interesting deviation from the standard trope of the abusive father that the coach has to save a kid from, right? This is not necessarily an abusive relationship. It's just a very tough situation Never for the family to life. be in. Yeah. Unending struggle they'll have to go through, probably. Even Well, then again, at the end of the movie, we see the title card. All these kids went to college, yeah. and none of their families had... They were all the first to go to college in their entire families, according to the title card, at least. I did like the touch, though. We've seen it in so many sports movies. We see the title card at the end. Miracle, good example. I think they show what every single player did. If this is reality, then fine. There's nothing wrong with this movie's reality. That's reality. Glory Road does it, too. But there's one of the guys that actually went to jail at one point. It may be Victor. I forget who it was, though. It was Victor. Oh, there you go. So I'm not glad it happened. But it just seems in so honest. many sports movies, yeah, more honest. In so many sports movies, okay, if these people didn't have a tough life and didn't struggle, that's great. I'm glad they didn't. But out of 20 people on a hockey team, like in Miracle, or seven people here, or whatever, 12 or so on a basketball team, somebody's not going to do okay. They're going to struggle. They'll have mental illness issues. They will go to jail. They'll have some crappy job. And that's what happens with Victor, apparently, in the future in this. But then yeah. he got his life back together because he's one of the people running, I believe, in that montage, right? The actual older Victor is running with the kids. That's right. That is another nice touch with that final title card sequence is the fact that you have the real Jim White and the real seven members of the movie that we follow through the movie running with present-day McFarland cross-country athletes and you get all of their various stories. But the fact that they were the real people... You could approach somebody in poor financial circumstances and say, listen, if you show up for 30 seconds at the end of this movie, we'll pay you $10,000. All right, I don't care what the content of the movie is. That money really helps me. But there is an implication to the fact that they were willing to show up in the movie that they were consulted to some extent and maybe just were at least willing to be there and present themselves. Well, a lot of them are teachers and coaches at that school, though, too. Which also speaks well, right? The fact that they would go back to the school that they graduated from and become teachers or athletes or coaches. Neville Shedd in Glory Road. Isn't he the one that's been pushed the hardest by Josh Lucas? And then he ends up being his assistant coach in reality for years. Yeah. And actually, that reminds me of another moment in this movie, which I thought was cute and a moment of demonstrating how Jim White was meant to be evolving in their worldview and understanding of things, even at the age they're at in this movie. He's sitting in the orange grove with the kids. And this is, I guess, towards the latter stages of it. But they just finished a practice and he's explaining to them that in his past lives and we've heard throughout the movie that he's not been like a spotless coach. This cleat throwing incident was not not the only one. Right. It's the only one we see, but we're told of other instances where he got into fights or things like that. But he says, you know, I used to take soft white kids, be hard on them until they toughened up. And then the seven kids on the track team laugh at the notion of being hard on these soft kids because their lives have been hardship basically since the age of 10, getting up at 4.30 a.m. to get to the fields by 5, work, go to school, after school, go back to the fields. So the notion of a coach cross-country or football being hard on you and making you tougher somehow is so laughable to them that that's a joke. That's good. And the fact that Jim White in this movie 
evolves enough to understand the life circumstances of his team that he recognizes that this is funny, right? And he's able to tell it to them as a joke. That's good because that demonstrates how far this guy has come from when we see him enter this community the first time looking fearful and like, oh, oh my God. And then all of a sudden he's like, I understand the place in which I live now. He would have taken that Palo Alto job in a second. Oh, yeah. In the early part of the film. And at the end, he doesn't take it. He wants to stay with them, I guess, because he realizes that this is where he belongs. Partly because Cheryl had been so impassioned about saying, I never felt more at home than I am here. And according to the movie, it's only been, and this wasn't reality, we know that, because they'd been there for many years. He went right out of high school to this school. But in the movie's logic, they've been there for months. Yeah. So she really got attached fast. But I do question him making such a rash decision. <laughs> He's making it with emotion. We just won. I can't bail on these guys. But it just happened seconds ago. Maybe you want to think about this a little longer. It's not like the Palo Alto yeah. thing. Although that guy had been a little racist earlier. The coaches that are even a little racist are not brutally over the top about it, which is, I guess, maybe smart. Most Disney movies don't really lay it on thick, yeah. which is smart. Because even if that does happen in reality, it almost feels like if you do that in a movie now, we know that. It just seems boring and lame. That's true. And I don't think it was Palo Alto. I think it was Corvus, that dual meet where they're just running heads up against right, the other team. Right. When they're off by themselves, Jim White and the other coach, the other coach for Corvus, turns to them and says, like, how do you communicate with your kids? Again, assuming that because they're of Mexican descent, they don't speak English, even though I'm sure they all grew up here. That was kind of effective to me because later on we see Jim assume the same thing about the Diaz family and the Diaz father. How did his father not speak at all during that whole dinner that he would have realized that he speak? Oh, I guess maybe they're all speaking... They're all speaking Mexican Spanish or, to each or other. Spanish, sorry, I said Mexican. There I go, sorry. But yeah, he could say that, I guess. But then you're probably going to include your white guest who doesn't speak the same language as you. It was very reminiscent of big Italian family dinners, especially with the grandmother or mother figure that every time you clean your plate, you're like, oh so full and then they put more on yeah. your plate and you're like oh I can't say no to Nona and then Jim White's just like oh going to explode and I love the kids like how many was enchiladas I think they had right is that seven or eight it's rude to say no it's also rude to throw up on the table <laughs> I've been there there's a lot of pressure to eat and you're a big eater your wife is not but she's dealt with it worse than you have yeah just the 20 that. people yelling around a table no but being made to eat and yeah. eat and eat I love eating and I certainly show it the evidence is there but not that much so just to wrap up that little does he go to Palo Alto thing or does he not, of all the misses in this movie, that was the biggest one. I wish they hadn't even bothered. That yeah. They, a, it felt needless because it was just rehashing something we'd already seen. He's a phys ed coach first. He's a football assistant coach, I suppose, first. Mm -hmm. So he's introduced to a group of kids that don't like him, don't trust him, and he has to win their trust. And we see him do that once. And then he loses Thomas, right? And he has to win him back a second time. We see that. The Mighty Ducks arc. They overhear him saying, they're all losers, coach, meaning his old coach, being sarcastic. But maybe then he has to win their trust back. And maybe that's it. It's movie drama. To me, there was no drama because you know what the result is going to be. He's not going to bail on the kids. He's just not. The offer is made. He goes for the interview. The kids find out. They get mad at him. His wife says, I feel so at home here. They go to the track meet. He gives the rousing speech. The end of the movie, there was never any sense that, you know what, maybe he will go. And there's no drama to it. Well, they won the finals, and he makes the decision within seconds. That's exactly. what I'm saying. That's pretty rash. But I assume if he actually was offered this job, and at that point in reality, over many years of being a cross-country coach, a track coach, in the movie's logic, it's been months he's been doing this. It's implied that McFarland is a very small school, in a, well, we know it's a very small school in a very poor town. Mm -hmm. 
they could have done without that stupid little subplot because it didn't really amount to anything. But if they insist on leaving that plot in, make it sound more enticing or make it at least seem like the family still wants to leave because the fact that the family wants to stay Mm -hmm. and Jim basically in his heart, you know, wants to stay. Give us some reason to believe that maybe he will leave. Maybe Palo Alto's offering him twice the money he's been offered a position. He talks about the offer. It sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty good, but we're not given any specifics, right? It's not like, oh, they're going to let us live in a beautiful house on the property or we'll be right by the ocean. There's no specifics. There's no enticement there. Is it the same position he's got right now? Because he's already a full-time teacher and coach. I don't agree with what you're saying. Because when he drives to Palo Alto, which is about four hours away, by the way, so that's a long day. If he had good traffic, that's eight hours just of driving. And you never have good traffic in California, as I understand it. Right, so it's probably a 10, 12-hour day that he was driving, having the interview, having lunch, and then going back home again. But they show when he gets there how nice the facility is. Oh, it is nice. Absolutely, And he does tell Cheryl that he'd be in charge of the program, the program. So that means that he's going to be in charge of something that's pretty well off. Yeah. So he's going to have a pretty good house to live in and raise his family. And in his mind, maybe at that point, because what had happened, that whole thing with the thugs that attacked... And we don't see any of that scene, actually. We see the aftermath when Julie is injured. Mm-hmm. But he's worried about the future of his family, the safety of his family, too. And he's thinking that that won't happen in Palo Alto, but that could happen anywhere, as Julie even, Cheryl, I should say, even says to him. But all those things are going through his head. I think you're looking at one of those things you've not liked, but the shorthand of when he drives up and you get to this almost palatial place in Palo Alto, all those things are solved. Now that you say it, you're almost certainly right. It's just one of those situations where the movie has gone to such pains to make it explicitly known that Cheryl is really at home here and loves the community. The girls are too. The girls become really infatuated with the community. We've seen the relationships grow between Jim and his students and their family. Look how sincere he is during the Quincenera Quincenera party. That's right. He's not making that up. He's not just being polite. He means what he says. That's exactly true. I'm not disputing what you're saying about shorthand, if you're absolutely correct. If you're going to try to make me believe that this is a real threat, he's going to leave McFarland. just beat me over the head with a reason why. This is the shining star opportunity of his life. After the quinceanera, when Julie, Julie, right? Julie. The right daughter? She goes off with Thomas and his uncle, I suppose, and car club enthusiasts. Mm-hmm. Costner says to him, I trusted you. You said she'd be safe. Understandable, right? Your daughter has just been in a scary situation. And the uncle says, ask her how safe she was or something like that. And I don't recall there ever being like a moment where he then speaks to her and she explains what happened. Earlier on, she just said they were yelling and fighting and they had a knife. But we never get the conversation later to follow up to the uncle's statement to understand what really happened. So I wasn't sure if that was meant to be a gang fight or just a random act of violence. And the uncle had protected Julie in that moment. I was just a little bit confused by the whole resolution. That's not the best done by Nikki Caro and the writers and everybody. You're right. We don't see it. Maybe that's a budget thing. Maybe didn't have a big budget. Yeah, I don't need to see it. You can explain it later. They didn't explain it all that well either. That's true. I wasn't sure if I I think the suggestion is that the boys, obviously Thomas especially, were going to step in the way of the white girl. They're standing up for her. Yes. They do take pains earlier in the movie, of course. In a good moment, I thought, when Jim apologizes to the uncle to say, I made assumptions about you earlier kind of understandable assumptions based on the way Mm -hmm. they approached his family but nonetheless i apologize i shouldn't have done that and he says back in the day yeah we were bangers or whatever but now you know we're just a car club we love our cars whatever so the punks probably are too maybe they'll be (laughs) chilled out people in another 20 years yeah maybe 
is their past coming back to haunt them? Like, is this an old grudge that somebody's trying to rectify? Because we hear that somebody had just gotten out of jail, right? One of those guys. So, I think that subplot's I don't know. It's, worse it's, than the one you didn't like, which is the Palo Alto job interview. Oh, it is definitely done They both worse. maybe could have gone, but I think that one maybe could really go. It also just provides the opportunity for Jim to say, I don't want to stay here. Except, again, we know in reality... And you had to look up this stuff. You just watched the movie. You didn't know that because yeah. none of that's explained. You and I looked it up so we know that is the truth, that Jim had already been there before. When he started coaching, it wasn't even Hispanic kids. That would have been a slow progression. He wasn't new to it. There's a lot of elements of this movie where I feel like the storytelling is pretty solid and the economics of some of the shorthand work, and I like the way they approached it. But then there's like a 15-minute stretch, basically from that post quinceanera scene through the Palo Alto interview, I could have really just done without all of that. I agree. I think you're right. basically gone straight to the final track meet. And I think it's probably even a little bit of a better movie because this movie is not about high drama. And this is another reason why... But that's what they're putting in the movie, in those scenes. That's what they're trying to, yeah. And they don't need to. I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another reason why it kind of reminded me a little bit about Peanut Butter Falcon because that is also a movie that's not really high drama through most of it goofy drama at the end mm-hmm. but not a lot of high drama it's just a lot of that tightly focused emotional dramatic narrative where you're focusing on relationships and mm-hmm. emotional intelligence and development and i think it's just a tighter more effective movie without that little chunk of time mm-hmm. in it. it's about 30 minutes shorter so that does bear what you're saying yeah so i didn't talk about the rotten tomatoes numbers i'll do it here oh, at yeah. the end of the podcast 80 percent of critics like this film which is a very strong number 6.7 out of 10 was the average on the strength of 133 reviews and 88 percent of audiences hearing that you might think this movie would have done a lot better business it did fine did okay for a small budget film but i don't remember it even coming out when you suggested this movie to me i thought it was a 2020 2021 no, straight new. to <laughs> streaming release and i looked at 2015 yeah. was there any marketing for this i don't all? think there was we said that on i think glory road we liked that movie a lot Right. And that movie didn't do all that well either. And you speculated that maybe the marketing was terrible. Disney's best thing is marketing. It's even better than their product a lot of the time. That's right. And yet sometimes they really drop the ball. Yeah. It's a different sport. We've never covered specifically cross country. Well, I guess Without Limits is. And we did that just last year. But that was about the cross country runner himself. Now it's the coach is the main focus with his students and his kids, but they're not white. So there's all kinds of angles and everything with that. We haven't even touched on the sport itself in this movie, the portrayal thereof. We'll get that in one second. So 63rd is what this movie was at the box office that year in 2015. Creed was 29th. Bev and I covered that for our podcast years ago. Southpaw, the Jake Gyllenhaal boxing movie, was 56th. Which we should do at some point. We'll do that at some point, yeah. yeah. And Concussion was 75th that year. As far as the actors, I talked about Costner, of course. No, we didn't say his credits. We said it last or two weeks ago, building up to this. But this is our fifth Costner film. Now, he hasn't been the star of all of them. Field of Dreams doesn't really play sports specifically. He's not one of the players. He has a catch, but that's as far as it goes. <laughs> Tin Cup, he plays golf. Okay, there's yes. that. Draft Day, GM, doesn't play any sports at all. Molly's Game, he is Jessica Chastain's dad in that and not really a big part of the film. But again, a coach, more or less. Right. It's right, especially when she's a youth. And three of those movies that we've covered are all in this past decade and not even that long ago. Draft Day was 2014. This is 2015. Molly's Game was 20, I think, 17. So he's definitely the leader of all the sports movie stars. Again, not always the star of his movie. Even compared to Woody Harrelson and some others that we've done who've been in maybe three or four. Tin Cup is one of my all-time Costner favorites. And I think we've both said in past podcasts that we are Costner apologists for the most part. But there's one or two moments in this movie where golf is specifically referenced. Yep. One moment I'm thinking of is that Corvus dual meet when Thomas turns to the guy next to him and says, hey, do you golf? And he's like, yeah, why? Well, this ain't golf. And then he takes off. 
I wonder if the screenwriters inserted those kinds of lines just because Costner's association with Tin Cup is so strong. Costner, golf. It might be that. It also is because golf is basically a rich man's game. And they talk about the scoring of the meets being lowest score wins. And he tries yeah. to make the comparison to golf. And they're like, oh, you think we golf, F.A.? Yeah, right. <laughs> Blanco. <laughs> Blanco. They had some good nicknames in this one, too. I mm-hmm. like that. Well, they call him Blanco. They call him White. And then when they actually fully respect him, then they call him Coach. But generally, it's Blanco. Everybody calls him that, including Signore, Signora Diaz. She calls him Blanco as well. That is kind of his name, right? His White. But it was a cute moment when they call him Coach for the first time. He's like, don't you mean Blanco? No, no. Coach. Mm -hmm. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, Valente Rodriguez is the principal. We see him more in the early part of the film. He doesn't really appear too much in the second half. But he's in Ed, the Matthew LeBlanc baseball, and I think chimp movie. So if we ever get desperate, we might see Valente Rodriguez again in that. And Danny Mora, who's the guy that owns that store that was never closed for a quarter of a century until they go to state, he was in Gridiron Gang, the Rock football movie. I think Rock's an inspirational football coach of kids in that one, right? So maybe we'll see Danny Mora again one day. And the classic, that guy actor you talk about all the time, well, Chris Ellis is that in this. He's the football coach. I thought he had a bigger role, but we only see him for a little bit, and then we never really see him again. The apple chomper? Yep. And he was in Days of Thunder. Also in Ellis, eh? Chris Ellis. There you go. No Chris is in my family I'm aware of, by the way, so no comparative names. Somebody spliced our respective DNA together. I don't know why I didn't realize Chris that. Yeah, Ellis Chris Ellis didn't even And him. made him just like a random character actor. Ryan DiGregorio. Yeah. But as for the depiction of the sport, we don't know Shinola about cross-country running so good. <laughs> the only small qualm I had was some of these guys, especially Velez, frankly, because he's meant to be the best of the group, they don't really look like they know how to run. And... Part of that is covered off earlier on because we know that Velez is not trained as a runner. He just runs to get around because he can't afford any run, other. Velez, run. Run, Velez, run. Costner does point out earlier on that their arms are flailing about. You look like the scraggly chicken that's in my yard. Keep your arms in. So they touch on that. But the technique for the kids that are at least supposed to be the better runners of the group, I thought could have been a little bit better. We don't know squadouche about running, so who the heck knows. But... Costner is not himself a cross-country coach, right? He's never coached track and field before he proposes to the principal that this is a thing the school should do. So I liked that touch, right? They had He's learning, too. The first meet when all the coaches have their stopwatches out and he's got his egg timer no, and they're right, all right. giving him the cockeyed look. Or he starts the timer and then all the coaches run off to get to the first turn so that they can call out the times. And Costner's like, what the? All right. <laughs> this is what we do, is it? I liked that mind your pace because what little I do know about running, pace is important. Those elements, at least they got right. The rest of it, who the heck knows? They could have just totally missed everything and misrepresented the sport and we probably wouldn't even know it. But by and large, I thought it was a pretty well done thing. And at least mm-hmm. it was well shot and appealing. And especially those moments that are meant to be even within the low drama that we've already said, this movie is not a high drama movie. It's not a ton of edge of your seat moments, but those races where you want to see McFarland come from behind and edge out the competition, like we see with Danny Diaz at the climactic race, we see it with Thomas a few times. It's pretty well shot, mm-hmm. I thought. Uno, dos, tres. McFarland. <laughs> you want to call it coach? That's a nice thing at the end. He gets to be the one that says uno, dos, tres. Yeah. I'd give it a six and a half or seven out of ten. Seven's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It's not the least bit original. That's part of the problem, of course. Yeah. But we've talked about some of the nice elements, and it's good that Hispanic kids get their shot at this kind of story because black kids have, and things like Glory Road, again, written by the same people, so it makes sense that they'd write these two films. Although I think they're both white, Cleveland and Giroir. 
maybe the actors were allowed to improv in their own way of speaking, in their own language in this case, because there's quite a bit of Spanish in this film. That would be nice if true. And then you get this Maori. I think Nikki Carroll is Maori, or she's just white, but she's from New Zealand. Maybe she can, but you'd think she wouldn't be able to relate to these young Mexican kids. No, but I think you hit on that earlier on when you talked about her... Uh, body of work. Body of work. Body of work. And if she's from New Zealand, she would be familiar with this personally, too, because I know the relationships between the European immigrant right. population of New Zealand and the Maori native population. There's prickly? A, I don't know how prickly now. There might have been some sort of reconciliation there. But just in terms of understanding the misconceptions that can occur with one group and the other and the relationship difficulties that can occur. I think she's probably well-armed in that regard, regardless of what specific ethnic groups you're talking about. Mm. But as far as the score of the movie, I think you're pretty fair about it. I'd give it a seven too, because it's a movie that has got some flaws. And like you said, it's not at all original, but it does add some relatively original tweaks to some elements of the movie the core element of the movie I think it succeeds at, which mm. is that whole Costner evolution and relationship with his seven young runners. You really do care, I did anyway, about that group by the end of the movie. And if a movie can pull that off, then I think it's broadly succeeded. Mission accomplished, yeah. yeah. And as I said, in this era, Costner was making movies about different types of races, hidden figures, this and black or white, and maybe others, but those three stand out. Interesting that he's really broadened his scope. He was woke before woke. And good for Costner. As Costner apologists, I feel like we should be proud of him. <laughs> Even in draft day, because he's dealing mostly with <laughs> black players. That's well, true. the one that he wants to draft, Chadwick Boseman. One more thing before we end. A credit to Nikki Caro or whoever thought of doing this. It's nice that a lot of McFarland residents, the real people, are extras in this whole movie. So that's a good touch to get them involved. Because they didn't yeah. necessarily just shoot McFarland. They shot over L.A. You see... Griffith Observatory at one point, so they yes. are literally in Los Angeles at the end. I didn't realize that's where they were necessarily. Maybe they said that, and I just didn't hear that when I was watching it. But then you see it, and you can't miss it. It's where Arnold comes to Terminator at the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they ever explicitly say this is where the final meet is happening, but as soon as you see that, that gives it away. Yeah, Bowfinger's climax is there, too. I watched that again recently. I love Bowfinger. It really does show you how desert-like it is right by L.A. You read in the newspaper. L.A. shouldn't exist like it does. It's like Vegas should and you read about, of course, the water shortages and all the trouble that the climate change stuff has inflicted upon that part of California. But the way this movie is shot when they're running up the slopes of the hills that lead to the Griffiths Observatory, that is desert and bush scrub. Essentially, mm -hmm. there's no green there. Yeah. So if you didn't pipe in all the water from, I guess it's Lake Mead, probably, that it all comes from, or the Colorado River, that city should not exist. Mm -hmm. It's wild. Okay, well, that was McFarland in some parts of the world. Add USA. In Canada, it's just McFarland. And I can see why the movie didn't succeed with that title, because that means nothing to most people. But a very Seth, nice time at the movies. Seth McFarland biopic, perhaps? <laughs> if he made a movie like this, it'd be a lot more than, well, Disney would let him, but he'd want it to be R-rated, probably. Oh, yeah. He does a show that isn't R-rated, but you know that Family Guy probably should be R-rated. Okay, in two weeks, we'll get into the Olympic spirit a little early as we cover another sporty goof fest by Will Ferrell. So we talked about Talladega Nights long ago, and we spat out thoughts about Semi-Pro long ago as well. This time, Slick Willie and John Heater are Olympic skaters in Blades of Glory. Or Eddie the Eagle. Maybe we'll do that. <laughs> if Blades of Glory is not on Netflix when we go to watch it, Eddie the Eagle will be on Disney+. Plus Because Disney+, Plus will not purge stuff, because they need more content. They don't have right. that much compared to Netflix and Prime. Prime is the one that always screws us, though. It's, let's watch this movie, and then it comes time to watch it, and it's gone. Yeah. So if Netflix takes out Blades of Glory... 
We'll do Eddie the Eagle because Eddie the Eagle is going to get done in the next couple of weeks anyway. So we're on Twitter. I am at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. You can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you wanted to listen to this on some other service rather than Spotify or Apple Podcasts or Deezer or Amazon Music, look in other places because it should be everywhere. Of course, email us at ScoringAtTheMovies at gmail.com as well. That's right. So take your easy, amigos, and stop taking our jobs. Jobs you don't want to do anyway, you... Well, not lazy, but... <laughs> hypocrites. I sense a rant starting. Take your jobs. <laughs>